0: verse 14 And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation I know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth for you say I am rich I have prospered, and I need nothing, to real. Uh, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous, Give us hearts that are tender, hearts that are humble, hearts that are teachable, so that you can have your way with us, that you can continue to fashion and shape us according to your purposes, that we would honestly see ourselves as your word reflects who we are and the struggles that we face and the, the, the sins that we, um, that we hold onto, as well as, Lord, the, uh, the ways in which we have to endure living this life in this world. Lord, give us, give us ears that are willing to listen to your truth so that we can be conformed to the image of your Son, and allow me, Lord, to simply be your messenger, to be faithful to proclaim your truth to your people, Lord, for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, a lot of times we think of um, our, our life with Christ as a journey, and sometimes that journey is a is a wonderful trip, enjoying the scenery, enjoying all the beauty that God has created in this world. And, you know, if you've grown up in the Bay Area, you may kind of be dulled to the fact that this is actually one of the most beautiful places in the world. The, the scenes that you can see, you can go to the California coastline, and it's incredible. Um, even the, the whole Peninsula Bay of the San Francisco, uh, you know, topography and stuff. just beautiful. And then you can go to Yosemite and you go to the valley. There's so many beautiful things to see here. And and part of our journey is taking it all in. It's taking all these things in that God has given us. And there's certainly a a blessed part to that journey. But there's also a journey that involves trial and struggle and, and fighting to keep one foot in front of the other, and at times that journey that we have turns into that kind of a struggle. It's a a daily grind, so to speak, and we're, we're trying to figure out how do we move, and how do we get up, and how do we get going, and sometimes we wish that God would just give us a specific or a particular letter to help us on our way. And the beauty of God and his word is that he doesn't just give letters to churches that are out there. He gives letters to churches that ultimately arrive here. And the letter that was sent to these seven churches is ultimately a letter that comes to Gateway. Let me just kind of walk you through the thinking there. Because God wrote seven specific letters to seven specific churches. But all those letters are contained in one big letter... That was to be carried to all the churches. And so these letters are to the churches. But as we've gone through each of these seven churches, you will notice at the end of each of the uh, instructions to those churches, we find that the application and the punchline is not just for the church at large, it's for the each individual uh, member or participant in that church. It says to the one who has an ear to hear. Look at verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it goes all the way down to the individual in that church. And when God breathed out his word, when God had this letter that we call the the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, when he sent that out, And when he contained that in the very Word of God, the Holy Bible that we have, he intended for us to read this as a way for us to understand the church, but also as a way for us to understand ourselves as participants in that church. So friends, this journey through the seven churches has been a a wonderful journey, a helpful journey. Um, It's not an easy journey because not everything in there is something you want to listen to. I mean, God's given us the privilege of listening in on the successes and the struggles and the sin and the scolding from Christ. But it's been a well-rounded picture of Christ's church at every point in history in different places around the world. So each letter, letter, so to speak, has been a case study of the kinds of conflict every church will face. And just for the sake of our time here as we come to this last one, let's just do a quick review. And I may not say it exactly how everyone else has said it, but let's just think through these different churches. Because as we think through them, what's been revealed to us are the many strategies of the enemy of the church of Christ. Ephesus was an orthodox church that lost its passion for Christ and the spread of the gospel. And isn't that a struggle for us who love God's truth and who want to defend God's truth, that we might lose a passion for Christ because our passion is for the truth. And then you have Smyrna, who was challenged to remain faithful in the the face of persecution. And, And I think the church in America in particular is beginning to understand that persecution is on the rise. It's in different forms. Our comfort has been shocked recently, yes, but it's only going to get worse. Now, it may not come with physical threats, but it may come with ostracism or just kind of being brushed aside as ignoramuses or simpletons. But the church is going to be persecuted, and we certainly will face that. Then you have Pergamum, who's challenged to repent of allowing false teaching to have a place in the context of the church. And as I've told you before, Don't go into a Christian bookstore looking for something that may be helpful. If you find it, let me know where it is. It's probably tucked off in a corner, an obscure place. It's not going to be up front, because most of the stuff that's in a Christian bookstore is not going to be sound theology. I'm just telling you. Okay, The church, by and large, has embraced uh, uh, unsound theology as the norm, And this is what Pergamum struggled with, as well as Thyatira, because it's called to repent because they entertained a form of religious tolerance for the the sake of economic stability. In other words, we'll put up with some some false doctrine. As long as we're okay, as long as we're financially stable, as long as, as life can continue to go on, as long as my portfolio isn't affected. Now, then we have Sardis, who's really living a lie... By appearing to be alive. They have a reputation in the community. They're a live church. But when God looks at that church, what does he say? It's dead. It's lacking. In fact, they are not willing to complete with the gospel. They're not willing to to live out the complete picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. They only go so far. Because they want to maintain being liked in their community above being faithful to God. And isn't there a temptation for us? especially now to want to be liked rather than to stand for the things of God to be faithful to that and as we move on this Philadelphia who is called to hold the gospel firm with endurance in the face of opposition and again that is what we are called to be doing in particular as a church and and this is something we need to maintain as part of our our passion and our desire and our goal that's why we have elders at least to be thinking about these things and wondering whether or not there is anything entering into the church and we need to protect the church and so one of the things we want to do is make sure that we're standing firm and that we understand the gospel we understand good faithful sound theology and then we get to Laodicea which is the last church which is where we are today Of course, Laodicea is known as the lukewarm church, and that comes right out of the language of the letter. Now, it's the last of the churches on this horseshoe postal route. And the name Laodicea may help us a little bit in understanding what went on in the fabric of the church to get it to the place where Christ would identify it as being lukewarm. I don't want to push this too much, but it is an interesting thing that Laodicea comes from two different Greek words. One that means um, the people and the other word that means rights or rule. In other words, there seems to be from the even name of the city a, a, a persona or a personality of that city that says we want to be a democratic city and that spills over into the church saying we want to have a democratic church that is unwilling to listen to the spiritual leadership that is overseeing them and is unwilling to be submissive to the authority of the word. Because what happens when you have a democracy in the church is that the people then determine what the church should be and do. And again, one of the reasons why we have elders is because democracy is an American concept. It's not a biblical concept. Leadership is supposed to be from the top down, not as a as an abusive thing, but as a, a means of leadership. You want your leaders to be strong and to be certain. You don't want to be ruled by people who are wandering in sin. So it gives a little picture as to possibly what is happening in the church in Laodicea. Secondly, it's worth noting here that Laodicea was one of three cities, you know, the tri-city area. There is Hierapolis, which was known for its caves, and for its, its, its sulfur hot springs. It was a place where people actually would go for a retreat. They would go there because uh, they believed in the healing um, capacities of those caves and of, of those, those hot springs. It's kind of like going up to Calistoga and getting a mud bath, right? I know some of you have done that. You've told me about it, okay? You may have done it once, right? But you go up there and you think that this is, this is what it's for, and so people would go there because of those hot springs. And then there's, of course, Colossae, which is a, a, a city that Paul wrote a letter to. So we know quite a bit about Colossae, and even some of the, 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 the Gnosticism, the, the kind of uh, um, uh, sophisticated but mystical ideas that entered the church there. And some of that may have even been connected to what was going on at, Hi- at Hierapolis. But then, of course, there's Laodicea, and that's the, that's the church that we're looking at right now. And uh, they also received a letter from Paul, but we don't have record of it. We don't know what it said. So these three churches, or not churches, these three cities had churches in them, but these three cities were all kind of close to each other, and there was a lot of interaction between them. That's worth noting, and that will kind of come up a little later. And then also, Laodicea was was famous for, or we could say well-known for, four things, but I'm only going to mention three right now. I'll mention the fourth a little later first aisle, they were known as a textile center in particular the the black wool of a particular sheep that they had um, was was famous and um, lots of people would come and they would trade with the textiles that they had there it was also a medical center um, known for its in particular its eye salve which was known within the Hellenistic culture um, as as helping with uh, various issues having to do with the eyes It was also a financial center. It was a banking center. So it was a very, very rich city that had a good economy because it had um, this textile center as well as the medical center going on. And so it was thriving. Again, those are helpful things for us to understand so we can get the picture of what's going on with Laodicea. In fact, Laodiceans were so proud and self-sufficient that when they had an earthquake in 60, the people refused to take help from Caesar. And they paid for the rebuilding of the city out of their own funds. Now, last week, Dennis mentioned Philadelphia. I think in 16 or 19, there was an earthquake there, but they needed help from, from the government, not the Laodiceans. They have all the money they need. All right? They were affluent they didn't need help from their government. They could take care of themselves. So the self-sufficient pride in the city was contagious and spilled over into the church. And I wrote here in my notes, note to self, the culture around me does affect how I think. So even a good church in a thriving city can be affected by the affluence and the attitudes in that thriving city to the demise of that church. Now, as we look at this letter, we want to look at it from from the perspective of these four categories um, that we began with in our study. Identification, where we're looking for what is Jesus identifying himself as, evaluation. What is he saying as he looks at that particular church, as he looks at Laodicea and the church there? What does he find? The solution, where we'll discover how Christ exhorts the church to change or to respond. And then a final contemplation, which often is um, something that he expects, but in this case, it's more of a promise to the church. So let's jump now into what I'm calling identification. Identification. How is Christ identified? Now, each church in these letters has been given an identification from Christ that helps us understand a little bit about their particular struggle. So these identifications are not random. They're purposeful. And in particular, what, what we find here is very purposeful for the Laodicean church. So Jesus introduces his letter to the Laodiceans, by identifying three things about himself. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So let's look, first of all, at this this title, the words of the Amen. Now, how, how do we use the expression Amen? Oftentimes, Amen is put at the end of a statement. In fact, if you go into some churches when the pastor's preaching, he might say something really good. Every once in a while, pastors do that, right? And people will respond by saying, amen, right? You may have grown up in a church that there was just kind of like this banter going on the whole time. Um, So it's often used at the end. And the idea there is you're saying, I agree with you, so be it. Then it's also used at the beginning. When Jesus in the the, um, gospel says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, it's the same word. It's emphasizing on the front end that what I'm about to say is really, really important. You need to listen. Okay? It's the same word. It's the same expression. But here we have it as a title. It's the title, The Amen. And the word Amen means to be firm, it implies that something is certain, is fixed, and unchangeable. Therefore, Jesus, as the Amen, is therefore certain, He is fixed. He is unchangeable. Now, see, that's helpful for us to know that He is the Amen. And the next identification, therefore, flows out of this first one. This unchangeable one is faithful and true. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the only faithful and true witness. He's reliable, He's the ultimate witness. And friends, as we press on, we'll discover that this is the central theme to this letter. Jesus is getting at something. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 5. Let's see what it says here. Revelation 1 and verse 5. I'll pick it up at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now go to chapter 2 and verse 13. We've already seen that Jesus is this faithful witness, but now I want you to notice a man by the name of Antipas. Now what are we told there? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. yet, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwelt. So there's this this need in the church in Laodicea to be like Christ in this particular area. To be a church that is a faithful witness. But it also tells us here, Jesus says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that he's the first in time, meaning that's why the word beginning is used some translations will say the first in rank, the idea there of ruler or even origin or source of God's creation. And as a source of Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, the church, he is their only hope. He is the one who made all things, and he's the one who can restore them from their place of being lukewarm. So this one who is Jesus now is, is coming to them and saying, listen, this is who I am. Again, I just want to highlight what we've seen so far in these seven churches as Jesus has identified himself. He comes to us in so many ways, doesn't he? He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is the first and the last who died and came to life. He's the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. He's the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are or like burnished bronze. He is the one who has the seven spirits and seven stars. He is the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. This list of of his character uh, is, is a wonderful call for us to get to know him better. To see that knowing Jesus helps us actually follow through with doing what he calls us to do. Because as we've heard, as we've gone through each of these letters, the goal here, the essence of each of these churches, is that Christ is central, and that Christ is listened to, and that Christ is honored, and that his will is followed. It's it's about Christ. And he's not not the one who is necessarily sitting in in the passenger seat. We want Christ to be sitting in the driver's seat, right? Using that analogy. As Dennis last week talked about, you know, here's this, this home. It's Christ that wants to be in the home who's actually in the center of the home. That's the, the idea here. We, like, like the Apostle Paul, want to know Jesus. And I just want to challenge you. Just learn more about the character of Christ. See his attributes. So you Read his word. Look at what Christ does. Not from the perspective of you know, the old little bracelet saying, what would Jesus do? but to to understand who Jesus is. And when you understand who Jesus is, then your your ability to follow his word is so greatly magnified. So this is a call to live a Christ-fueled and Christ-centered life. That's identification. Now let's look at what I'm calling the evaluation. What is Christ saying about the condition of his church in Laodicea? He begins by saying, I know your works. Have you heard that before? I just want you to ask you a question. Is it a comforting thing that we read a, a phrase like, I know your works, or is it something that causes us some concern? The fact that Jesus can look at each church and say, I know your works. And some of those churches are like, I mean, they're, they're holding on, they're doing well, but most of the churches, they're struggling with sin in some area, aren't they? And he says, I know your works. So it should be both a, a comfort and a concern. It should be both producing fear as well as joy. It should be a place for us to rest as well as a place for us to panic a little bit. See, he knows every time you are faced with that temptation. He knows every time that you are insulted for your faith or that you're lazy with your growth in Christ or that you raise your voice to your spouse or your children or that you hide in your closet and weep. He knows. And no one else may know, but he knows. He knows. Just think about the last sinful struggle that you face. Remember, he knows about it. Just think about your most recent suffering of persecution or maybe someone was insulting you, but it was maybe not directly according to your faith, but it was kind of a veiled attack on your belief in Christ Jesus. Think about your present hopeless predicament. He knows all about it. Other people may not understand what you're going through, they may not understand the, the struggle that's going on in your heart, but He knows. Now, friends, that is comforting, but it is also daunting. The fact that God is omniscient is a wonderful blessing for we who are his children. Coming to terms with the fact that he knows is foundational to a healthy walk with God. Let me say that again. Coming to terms with the fact that he knows is foundational to a healthy walk with God. It gives us a constant awareness that the lies of the enemy and the doubts of our sinful hearts Are painting a flawed picture of our situation. Jesus knows, has known, and always will know. And because he knows, we can both find comfort and care in him. You know, oftentimes, you know, people use the expression, you know, I'm just waiting, you know, to forgive and forget. And I'm, you know, God's forgiven me, but I'm not sure if he's forgotten. God doesn't forget. He knows all the sins that we've committed. But you see, when he grants forgiveness, he chooses not to apply against us what he knows and what has been forgiven. And the beauty of that is that we may know of past sins in your life. Your your spouse may know that, your friends may know that, but when there's forgiveness, we who are God's children, although we know those things, we have a memory of, if we're going to be like Christ, we choose not to hold those against them. Why? Because it's forgiven. That's why God says, I, I cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. He says, I will remember it no more. He doesn't forget, but he chooses not to remember. Okay? The idea there is holding you accountable for that again. Now, what is it that he knows about this church? Well, first of all, what we find here is that they are lukewarm. That's at least how he identifies Let's read it. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? And we've all experienced this before. We've all, maybe at one time, maybe we've been working out in the yard, maybe it's been a sports kind of scenario. My, my, my greatest memory of this was when I was playing soccer in college. We were in South Carolina. It was the summer, and it was just burning, burning hot, really, really humid. It was like 80 degrees, right? But this is the Midwest, and 80 degrees in the humidity is just like, ugh, right? And we were practicing soccer, and it's like time for a break, and run over to the hose and turn the water on, and it was just like, ugh, just lukewarm water, it was nasty. You didn't want to drink it, but you're kind of like forcing yourself to actually put the liquid in your mouth, but it just, it tasted horrible. Now that's, that's the feeling, that's the attitude, that's the, 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 the image that he's bringing up. But many times as we come to this particular uh, passage of Scripture and this idea of being lukewarm, we, we've interpreted it in a way that takes us away from the context of Laodicea. For example, it's often understood in the following way. You're not hot, which means you're not spiritually zealous. You don't have any passion. And you're not cold, which means that um, you're, you know, you're not ungodly. Uh, you're not hate, hating Christ. So the, the, the hot and the cold are considered to be two extremes. And just think about it this way. Uh, our, our, our contemporary culture can use those words in all sorts of different ways, Right? I mean, a guy can be walking down to, you know, down in, in, at the mall, and he can see a girl and say, wow, she's hot, right? And his buddies would say, well, hey, man, you're cool. And you're like, so what does this mean? And, and my point here is this, that we will often have words that we come up with what their meanings are in a colloquial sense, and so what we've done is we've ended up saying that hot here in this, this picture is the positive thing because you're not on fire for God, that's what we're saying. And you're not cold, in other words, you're not against God. And you're saying, you see, God's saying, I'd rather be hot or cold, but you are lukewarm. And so God hates that. But the ideas of hot and cold are not necessarily negative or positive or even opposites. Now just think through this. Would Jesus really prefer that his church were living in outright apostasy, in other words, icy coldness, rather than in the middle of the road, soft Christianity? Do you think that Christ would really tell his church, I I wish you would rather just hate me instead? And my answer would be no. What we have done is we've traveled from Laodicea, or actually we travel from the book of Revelation to 2015 without traveling through Laodicea to understand what is the context there to help us understand the image that is being used here. So how would the original audience of Laodicea understand these images in their context? Remember I said that Laodicea was known for four things? It was known also, not just for textiles and wealth and medicine, it was also known, embarrassingly so, for having a worthless source of water. A pathetic and useless water supply, and that's why Laodicea had so many water aqueducts, because their water supply was pathetic. Now I want you to think about this. Hierapolis, which was six miles to the north, had hot medicinal springs and would bring healing to the weary and hurting body. Colossae, which was 10 miles to the east, was blessed by an abundance of cold, clear mountain water that would soothe the lips and throat of anyone who was thirsty. And then you have Laodicea that had nothing to offer because their water supply was lacking. I want you to think about the image here. Just think about living there in Laodicea. You would know, hey, listen, that hot water up in Hierapolis, people really like that. And that cold water over in Colossae, oh man, that is refreshing. Well, we have nothing. <laughs> nothing to offer. So we have to bring our water in to make up for what is lacking. So the idea that Laodicea's water is lukewarm is not so much about the presence of water or the lack thereof of their water, but about the fact that their wa- the water that they did have served no purpose. It had no value. It brought no benefit to the community. People didn't travel to Laodicea to drink their water. The idea of being lukewarm then is not saying that the church in Laodicea was spiritually apathetic or lazy, even though that may be true. It is identifying the fact that their witness for the cause of Christ had no value in their community. Their presence as a church served no purpose. They, as a church, provided neither refreshment nor healing for those who lived around them. They had no evangelistic impact. Now, we understand the benefits of hot water. Washing dishes, taking a shower, killing germs. And we understand the benefits of cold water. That's why we have things that are called, what, ice chests, coolers. Because we want that Coca-Cola, to be nice and cold, so it's refreshing, right? But we understand also cold is a preservative. But there's no joyous use for lukewarm water. It really doesn't serve much of a purpose. I thought, all right, so what, is, what does lukewarm water serve? What are some uses for lukewarm water? And I thought of one. If you have fish and you're changing the tank, don't use hot water, don't use cold water, use lukewarm water, right, that you can feel with your elbow, because you do not want to shock the fish. But doesn't that just prove the point? The lukewarm water doesn't impact the fish. We're called to be the church in the community. And as a church in the community, we ought to have an impact. Something should happen. Now, it doesn't mean that Everyone around us right now is thinking, wow, what are they doing in there? I can hear them singing and all that kind of stuff. They're not talking necessarily about that, but it's talking about how the gospel just oozes out from the the people of the church in the spheres in which they live, and they're living it out, and people are seeing that Christ is central. The word of God is important, and obedience to that word in a loving and joyful, submissive and humble way is a means and is the practice of the followers of Christ in that church. And that has a lasting impact on those that are around. It may be a negative impact, but it's an impact. But the Laodiceans, they weren't impacting at all. So Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church, this is how I feel about you. Because of the choices that you have made, You serve no gospel purpose, so much so that you make me want to puke. When God calls a church to be present in a community or a culture, its gospel presence should be felt by that community. It should make a difference, because people's lives are being affected by the preaching of Christ's gospel. I mean, when you go into your place of work on Monday morning, I I hope, that you go in there with, with, with a backdrop of God's truth, whether it be from a sermon preacher, whether it be from your own devotional time, and that you face things that maybe co-workers who aren't followers of Christ are facing differently. And the real difference there is because you're a child of God. You bring that into the sphere of life in which you live. It means that you should have an impact that causes people to ask the question, what is different about these people? There should be a place where souls are being saved, lives are being built up, marriages are being restored, hope is regained, integrity is being pursued, humility and hospitality are praised, and honesty is being held up as virtuous, all because the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is on display, presenting the riches of the glory of Christ to those around them. To be lukewarm, then, is to be lacking in gospel witness Impact. Now, how does this happen? Being lukewarm didn't just happen, it is the fruit of something in this church. Let's continue on. There's lukewarm. They are also self sufficient. Notice what it says For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Now, contrary to cultural and contemporary political opinion about the 1%. It is not sinful for an individual to be rich. It is not sinful for a congregation to be rich. If its wealth can be handled with care and faithful stewardship, an affluent church can be a great blessing to the greater body of Christ. Generous giving to missions. Generous provision of resource for for the greater body. Generous and gracious gifting of time and training Support and counsel for those who are in need. Those can all come from a church that has resources and is faithfully applying them (coughs) for the cause of Christ in their context and even thinking about the rest of the world. But having said that, we all know how wealth can seduce. Money and affluence can seduce Christians to have a distorted view of Christ and have a distorted view of his calling on individuals or even the church. Wealth can seduce and cause us to capitulate what we know to be true so that we can have the standard of living that is comfortable and free from blood, sweat, and tears. Now friends, just in my observation, I think the church in America struggles from this tremendously especially when you take time to go to other countries and you walk into the church in other countries and they are like-minded. They love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're happy with simpler things. And we're struggling with the comforts that we're used to and they're just happy to be there. They're happy to sit on a bench that's made where you put some bricks together and you lay a plank down just as long as I have a place to sit. I'm happy, but we're like, okay, where are the blue chairs or where are the cushion chairs or whatever it might be. We have elevated ourselves because of our affluence and sometimes we're we're at a place where we're saying, am I willing to lose my affluence and my comfort For the sake of standing up for what's true, for honoring God in this situation. And friends, there may be in the next few years a challenge for us all that is not just do we believe, but are we willing to believe by having some of our comforts removed? And it's going to affect our checkbook. It's going to affect our church's finances. It's going to affect a number of things. But that's okay if we are standing firm for the cause of Christ. Now think about it. If you are are an affluent church and you are self-sufficient in that affluence, why pray about a situation when you can just throw money at it? I mean, why... Why worry about the destruction of your home in an earthquake? We can you just pay someone to build it again and probably add a few more rooms. Your affluence can so distract you from what God has called you to be and do. And in a culture, in a community where that is true among the people, it's so easy for that influence and that attitude to spill over into the church. So, wealth, although not sinful, can become its own idol and savior that replaces Christ. But the sad reality is, they were unaware of any of this. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, that's a pretty striking statement, isn't it? They're so self-sufficient in their affluence that they don't even realize their poverty. The five words that are used to describe what they don't realize are not really here to be taken as individual characteristic traits. They're all put together as a whole, as a picture of their spiritually impoverished condition. They're rich but blinded at the real nature of their spiritual impoverishment. Listen, they're the church and if they are the church, they truly are rich. But they have no idea of their despairing poverty because of their abandonment of God in resting on their own affluence. They are economically prosperous but spiritually bankrupt. They lacked spiritual riches because they were blind. They, they lacked spiritual character because they were wretched and pitiable and naked. They lacked spiritual insight because they were blind. And as a result, that bore fruit in being lukewarm, of not having an impact in the community in which they live. So certainly, part of the picture of not having an impact was that they had become lazy in their Christianity. They weren't necessarily on fire for God, they were on fire for their own comfort and for their own affluence. Now a couple of examples I thought of as I was thinking through this is how is this true in you know, in today's world, and I came up with two, two areas, or two, you might want to say, pictures of the church where I think this is true. And you may disagree, but that's fine. But here's the first one. I would call it the, the mainline liberal churches. The mainline liberal churches can be all sorts of different denominations. It could be, um, could be Presbyterian, could be Methodist, could be could be Baptist, but they're these... These old line, main line churches, when you walk into their churches, their buildings are huge. They've got beautiful facilities. They've got stained glass windows. They've got all sorts of high church stuff going on there. But they are the ones, by and large, that are waving the flag of the gay and lesbian agenda right now and saying, yes, come in, not realizing, although they have money from all sorts of people, how miserable and poor and blind and naked they really are but this didn't happen in a blink of an eye this happened over time there was a slippery slope with those mainline churches when they denied the authority and the inspiration of scripture and then they denied the intent and the extent of Christ's atonement. In other words, his death on the cross and what that means and what was accomplished by virtue of that. Rather than believing in the substitutionary atonement, what they did is they, 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 they shifted over to say, well, Jesus was an example for us to follow. And what he did on the cross was give his life and we ought to give our lives for mankind and totally turning the gospel on its head. And yet, having all this wealth and all these resources, when it comes down to it, they have really no gospel witness at all. When you remove those core realities, then you're willing to embrace all kinds of twisted teaching rather than the saying, staying faithful to God's word. The second example that came to my mind was what we typically call the prosperity church. So, these other circles where people attend churches where you come dressed in your Sunday best. You've probably heard that before, right? But I'm not talking about just your Sunday best because this is the best you have, but it's almost like every Sunday is a competition. And the best dressed person in the house has to be the pastor. Right? And so you, you just don't, you don't go too high, right? I mean, if you're a guy, you just you keep it notch a little bit lower and let him wear the gold and the silver and all these different things because he's going to come and he's going to be wearing the sharpest clothes, the most expensive clothes, and, and we've got to come. And they'll say, well, you know, you've got to give your best for Jesus, right? And, and what happens is the church becomes a place where affluence is shown off. You're driving around the parking lot, and here you are in your Yugo, you know, and you're looking at all these other cars in the parking lot. You're like, what's going on here? Because what's going on there is in that culture, in that church, there's an attitude that says, if I have wealth, then I am successful in the eyes of God. And in doing that, the church has lost its impact with the gospel. If anything, what it's doing in the context is giving. Uh, an excuse to substantiate a mockery of Christ in its church. And the other result is that it's producing people who are dependent on financial handouts. The gospel is gone, and soon this church is focused on prosperity or politics that will only fuel greater prosperity. And friends, this is, this is what happens, and we have churches like that today. And we've got to be careful that we are not so comfortable in our affluence. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Gateway Bible Church an affluent church? I'll give you the answer. Yes, we are. In fact, most churches in the United States of America are affluent churches. And we've got to be careful that we don't just measure ourselves by ourselves, that we understand how money grabs a hold of us and causes us to kind of shift and, and move in our particular places where God wants us to stand firm because we may be more concerned about our comfort. Friends, this is what sickens God to the point of vomiting, the kind of behavior that is seen in his church. Now, let's look at the solution. Now, I would say this, that the solution that we're going to find here... um, is not necessarily what the Laodiceans deserve. There are no accolades given to the Laodiceans about their condition, but Christ gives them hope of restoration. And friends, there's, there's nothing that we deserve, and yet Christ gives us hope. And so the big surprise in this text for Jesus or from Jesus, is that he offers three surprising words of encouragement to the self-absorbed, self-sufficient, spiritually unaware church that has lost any sense of impact on its culture. These are sweet, undeserving words, and they come to us as cool refreshment to restore our souls to God. First word, surprise number one, Christ's counsel. Counsel. Christ doesn't have to give us counsel. In fact, he has every right to give us commands, but he comes to the Laodicean church with counsel. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And the emphasis here is on the pronouns. You buy from me. In other words, Jesus likens himself uh, to a visiting merchant that's coming into the city and he's putting his wares out there and he's saying, listen, leave your riches behind Buy my gold, and it will bring you heavenly riches that matter. He's saying, leave your wool behind and buy my garments so that you can clothe yourself in the white garments of Christ's righteousness that will cover your shameful nakedness. He's saying, leave your human enlightenment behind and buy discernment, the salve from me, so that you may see what is true. So he's, he's, he's narrowing in on these three areas where the Laodicean church is known their textiles, their finances, their medicine. And he's saying, leave that behind and instead buy for me. Now, this word buy does not imply that there's some kind of a work that we need to do, but he's simply basically saying this come back to me. Find your satisfaction in me. Return to me. All you need to do is turn back to me and be satisfied with me once again. That's his loving counsel. And then we we see next his love. And here's the surprise Christ doesn't have to love his church, but he does. Those whom I love, he looks at the Laodicean church and he says, Guess what? I love you. I mean, look at what they're doing. I mean, they just pushed him out. And he turns to them and says, listen, I love you. I love you. Those whom I love, what do I do? I reprove and I discipline. It's what a loving father does. So be zealous and repent. So reproof and discipline are actions of a loving parent and a loving savior. And the goal is both repentance and zeal. Now this word repentance is in the aorist tense, the aorist imperative, and it means change your mind now. Do this now. Change your mind about what's important. Change about your mind about who should be central. Change your mind about how you have allowed yourself to be drifting away from what should be central in the church and come to me now. Then it's also be zealous, which is a present imperative, which means be continuing in your zeal and your eagerness to pursue me. And so there's a picture here of, of being restored once again in your Christian walk and then continuing on in what we call progressive sanctification in your pursuit to become more like Christ. He's calling them back again to start afresh, to begin anew their walk with him and their joyful walk with him. So our repentance gives birth to ongoing eagerness and zeal in the pursuit of Christ. Now isn't that encouraging, friends? Here is this church that has lost its impact due to its self-absorption and self-sufficiency. It has relegated Christ behind the scenes in ignorance of its miserable condition and Jesus comes with loving counsel and calls it to both repent and pursue him. And so as we read this, friends, there is still hope for us, isn't there? You see how Jesus longs for fellowship with his church? He counsels, he loves, and I want you to see his longing. Surprise number three, Christ doesn't have to long for fellowship with his disobedient church, but he does. You and I would probably just get fed up and say, all right, nuts, to it. But Christ is still in the center of all the lampstands. Still holding the stars in his hand. He hasn't given up on his church. What is it that Christ longs for? He wants to sit down at the table and share a meal with us. Notice what it says there, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, just a side note, this is a very familiar verse of Scripture. And one of the reasons it's so very familiar is because it's used in evangelistic contexts, where it says that Jesus is standing outside the door of your heart and he's knocking and once you open the door and, and, and accept him into your house, into, the, you know, in, into, into your heart, that's, that's how it's used in an evangelistic context. But friends, I, I want us to think through a little bit about the context of this letter. There are seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And these letters are all in this one big letter, the book of Revelation, that is written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So when we understand the statement in the context of Revelation, we cannot rightly come to the conclusion that this is an evangelistic statement. You might say, well, I've known people that have come to Christ because this verse was used. What do you say to that, Pastor Otto? My answer is yes. I have known people who have come to Christ in that way also, but that doesn't change the fact that the verse was used improperly. It's just helpful to us, for us to remember that we're not perfect in our understanding and in our interpretation. And sometimes God actually works through our imperfect interpretations and applications of God's word and people get saved anyway. Isn't that a good thing? I'm thankful that God works in spite of our failure to interpret correctly, but we should be eager and careful as we begin to understand Scripture to use it correctly. So friends, this is a vivid picture, isn't it? Jesus is standing outside the door of the Laodicean church, a church where he has been pushed out. Affluence has been their satisfaction. Affluence has been their their, their mode of operation, so Christ is not being honored. Christ is not being preached. Christ is not being relied upon. And as a result, he is not being offered as the true need for mankind. This is not a call for salvation, but a call for Christians who need to renew their call to be restored to fellowship through repentance. For Jesus to be brought back into the center of the house, and so to fuel the flame of influence on their lives in their church and in their community. Christians who have lost themselves in the self-sufficiency are pursued by Christ now to refresh and renew their intimacy with him. And just think about this, to invite someone into your home in that particular context was to invite them into, your, into their home to sit down and to have intimate fellowship, intimate um, interaction with them. This is what Jesus wants with his church. So when God's children open the door, Jesus enters in bringing fresh expressions of intimate love. And friends, this brings us to the final contemplation. There's really only one thought here, one promise that he gives us. And it's a powerful promise. And uh, we need to see it here the one who conquers. Remember, that's a picture of every Christian. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the promise is of us sitting on the throne with Christ and we're reminded of the theme of the heavenly riches that we found in um, the book of Ephesians. I want to just encourage you, turn to the book of Ephesians and let's just look at, just highlight two two passages where we find this. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then you go to chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. You know verse 4 because it begins like this, But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, this is the promise for every believer that we will one day sit with Him in the heavenly places, that we will be accepted. As part of that family. Now, we're not going to be God, but we're accepted into the family of God. And we have all these riches and heavenly places, these benefits that come to us because of the gospel. We have many of them now, but we also have the promise of our inheritance, which is going to be realized with what Jesus here promises. But the way to get there and the, the, the mode we should place ourselves in is to follow the example of Christ. As we're told, there is... I also conquered and sat down with my father in a stone. What was it that Jesus did when he conquered? Well, he, went, he left heaven, the comforts of heaven, came to this earth, went to a cross, and on that cross, he said, this is it, it is finished. In other words, I have conquered. He is the best example of what it means to conquer. And so we follow his example by humbling ourselves to the Father, and to Him as we live our lives for His glory. It's it's an idea of dying to self and living for Him. Now this morning I want to leave us with a few thoughts. It's really one big thought, but there's a few thoughts that kind of build on it. Some concluding thoughts. It is easy for us, as we go through these seven letters, to, to get a little discouraged because it just seems like so much of what's going on in these, in these seven letters is negative, negative, negative. I mean, is this the condition of the church? And actually, you know, even in today's world, there are many people that are under the umbrella of the body of Christ that are saying, ah, I don't know about the church. A number of years ago, this was back in the 80s, I went to the Buffalo um, rescue mission, had a dinner. And the speaker for that night This is where pastors and their wives that supported the mission um, were gathering for a dinner. It was a big deal. Lots of people there. Um, And uh, Tony Campola was supposed to be the speaker. But Tony Campola, if you know who he is, um, out of Eastern University, kind of a Christian sociologist, um, he was going to speak, but he got sick, and so he sent his son Bart. Um, I don't know if sending your son in your place is always a good idea um, but Bart was there and Bart gets up and he starts talking about ministry in the inner city and then he says he says I just want you guys to know he says I'm really not big on the church there's so much doctrinal division there's so much foolishness there's so much arguing so much stuff going on and of course his audience is what a bunch of pastors but here is this son of a at that point in time a Popular Christian leader and writer who was saying to a group of pastors, I've given up on the church. I mean, yes, he said, he says, I don't go to church anymore. I just go out and I do ministry for the glory of God. And friends, there is an attitude among Christianity that is still present and continues that says the church is so full of schisms and factions and sin and hypocrisy and compromise on doctrine. And on the gospel, and it's too much like the world, and it's man-centered, and its leadership is sinful and authoritarian. Let's just let's just give up on church. Instead, we'll just meet in people's homes. Well, I've also heard people lament and say, if only the church would turn back to the way it used to be when I was growing up. As if somehow in their mind that church really existed. Because if we learn nothing else from Revelation 2 and 3, is that the church on the earth from Pentecost till now has never been perfect. There has never been a glory or a heyday. Now, there have been seasons where in certain particular areas of the world, the church has thrived. But friends, this is a picture of the church. It's an honest picture of what we go through. It's an honest picture of the struggles that we face. And so I, I wonder when those people make statements like that, because they've made them to me. Are you talking about the church in the 80s? Are you talking about the church in the 60s? Are you talking about the church during the Reformation? Are you talking about the church you know, before any of the councils met? No, the church has always been and will always be until the Lord calls us home struggling with sin and all these different things. The problem is it's it's easy to have a rosy picture of what the church has been in the past. One of the worst churches we have on record is the church at Corinth, right? All the problems that Paul deals with there, not once does he say, hey, listen, the problems are just too bad. Just shut it down. Just give up on it. He doesn't say that at all. Not at all. So whenever... You hear Christians bad-mouthing the church and saying things like, "We, we should just meet in houses rather than the organized church. Remember that they are giving up on what God has created and commanded them to be a part of. We who are blessed with the riches of Christ in heavenly places, we who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we who are enlightened because we now have the mind of Christ, are called to be his church and have a meaningful impact in the culture in which we live. We're not perfect. And our church will never be pristine. But we must not give up on what Christ has not given up on. See, he's still in the midst of those candlesticks. He still has the stars in his hands. The Puritan John Flavel, I think, says it well. He says, oh, be not too quick to bury the church before she's dead. As long as Jesus Christ is her head, that is, her life-giving source, the body will never die. From the song, The Church is One Foundation, stanzas three and four, not ones we typically sing. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend to guide, sustain, and cherish, is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her, and false sons in her pale, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her way she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest god's calling us to be awake to be realistic but to be the church now for his glory Lord, help us as we've gone through this series to be honest about our own self-diagnosis, not just as a church but as as individuals. And Lord, that we would learn from the various struggles and temptations the church goes through all the time, that we we would stand firm on your truth, that we would be people who are willing to repent that we, people who are willing to listen to what you say and, and to live in such a way that we are having an impact on those around us. Lord, we want to be the kind of church you're calling us to be. Yet, Lord, we know that we are sinful. We know that, that amongst us and in our own hearts there is battle for sin that is raging and yet we trust in the ever-living Christ To be the one that brings satisfaction, that brings joy, that brings correction, and brings restoration, Lord. May your word not drive us away because our hearts are hardened, but Lord, may your word penetrate and soften us and draw us back into fellowship with you. Help us, Lord, to be the church you've called us to be. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.